probably that I'm losing my voice, so keep it down, all right? Um, a couple of weeks ago, I gave an introduction to the study of Nahum. I have, uh, it was, I told you that I had an outline. It was suggested I make some copies, so I made some copies. If you're interested in them, they'll be up here. And um, in that introduction, just real quick for those who weren't here, we saw that Nineveh was really quite an impressive place. I think even by today's standards, it was really quite an accomplishment. There was, uh, well, I won't go into all of that again, but, but it, there, there was a, this was a powerful empire for 300 years. And then all of a sudden, it collapsed literally in one night. You know, how can that happen? We don't understand that. You know, they, they, were, they did nothing for 300 years but conquer other nations ruthlessly. And then literally one night, it all came to an end. How does that happen? Well, we saw that one commentator just, just said, look at Nahum. It, God's very clear how it happened. These people stood opposed to me. Now, who are these people? These are people we know from the book of Jonah, which we study together, had repented 150 years before this. And I quoted from Anderson, and Charlie said something similar to this in a sermon a few weeks ago. Past blessing does not guarantee present peace. The people of each generation must seek and serve God for themselves. And I think that sense true for us as individuals. You know, past blessing does not guarantee present peace. We must what? We must continue, Colossians 2.6 says, as we have begun. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So we finished that introduction with just the reminder that now is the time to live by obedient faith in Christ. So now we move on, start the study in chapter 1 and verse 1. And I want to, uh, we'll start with prayer, and then we'll take a look at, even though we're starting with chapter 1, verse 1 of Nahum, we're actually going to look at Romans 1 for a few minutes. So let's pray. Uh, would somebody like to lead us? Give my voice as much of a break as I can. Okay, Jeff. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Kelly and for the opportunity you've given him to study uh, through Nahum. And uh, Lord, we just pray that you would um, open our hearts to hear your word, that you would lead us by your spirit, that you would, um, uh, that, yeah, that we would just be, be ready to hear from you, that our hearts would be willing to, to be drawn to you and, and follow after you. So just pray that you would give uh, Kelly the strength that he needs, give his the ability to hold out this morning and um, be glorified by what takes place here, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that there's a reason why teachers and preachers avoid the prophets. There's not a lot of encouragement that is seen at face value. But I find that every time that I spend, spend time in these books, lots of encouragement is found. It's not there on the surface. You've got to spend time with it. 
And that's really what's happened with me over these last 10 months in studying Nahum, just accumulating information, and then just sitting there, uh, thinking through it, just, lo just looking at all that has been shown to me, and the Lord starts to pull things out. And I find that in this hard message, there is great encouragement. When you hear the words providence, our sovereignty, what do you think about? What comes to your mind? What was that? Power. Power. Okay. Anybody else? Control. Control. God's goodness. Okay, his goodness. Do you ever think of his, his care when you hear that? Does it ever scare you? Unnatural timing. Okay. Unnatural timing. For who? The beneficiary promise. Yeah. Yeah. Does, when, you, when you think of his sovereignty, do you ever find yourself maybe fearing a little bit? I hope so. <coughs> you know, we, 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 want to, we seem to want to avoid that, don't we? That can't be from God. Do you acknowledge the providence and sovereignty of God in your life and his faithfulness in dealing with sin? in your life. Let's turn to Romans chapter 1 for an introduction. We'll start in verse 18, some familiar words. I think a lot of us are familiar with Romans chapter 1. <coughs> oh, sorry, I coughed right into the mic. Okay, Romans chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 18. For the wrath of God. Now, some of you maybe knew Bernard Briscoe, and uh, he was uh, one of our guest lecturers for years. I think he started in 1975, first year that we had classes at his hill. And then he would come back every year, and then he and his wife, Helen, ended up moving uh, right there close to the property and were kind of one of the sets of grandparents that we had around. Bernard was uh, he was very purposeful, I think, with everything that he did. And uh, when he would teach Romans, he wouldn't just read that verse like I did. Uh, he, you know, for the wrath of God. No, no. When he said wrath, he was British, and he could be very theatrical. And he would blow the windows off the chapel. We told, I, would, I was in charge of the sound back then, and I used to tell the technician... Before Bernard showed up, I said, listen, when this guy puts that mic on, you turn him down. I mean, you turn him so far down that he is barely amplified. And I remember one year, one of the students said, oh, I got it. Yeah, I said, no, I'm serious. You turn him down. I could hear him yelling from the parking lot, turn him down. He says, okay, I understand. And... Uh, the student, instead of sitting at the, at the booth for that first class, he sat in his desk. Bernard got behind the podium, and he started just yelling about the wrath of God. And he would just yell it. And this student, they said he jumped up from his desk because there was so much feedback screaming at them, that, and he dove over the, the booth to get to the board to turn him down. But Bernard wanted to emphasize something with us. The wrath of God. 
is something to pay attention to, to not be comfortable with. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Look at the wording. All ungodliness. See, something about the prophets, which we're going to go to in a second, something about them is if you're really serious about thinking through it, reading, listening to what the Lord has to say, it's not comfortable. Not only for Assyria, but when you realize that God is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever, it's not comfortable for us. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that... They are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Uh, that just really jumps out at me in verse 21. For though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Do you acknowledge the providence and sovereignty of God in your life and His faithfulness in dealing with sin in your life? You know, <clears throat> we have a recording of... <laughs> audible recording, of course, but we, we have the, the speech that George Washington gave, or the, I'm sorry, not the speech, but the um, proclamation that he issued in 1789 for Thanksgiving. Now remember, we've got to remember what is the context of him writing this. We had just recently won independence. As a country, we accomplished something that had never been done before. It was a great feat. And when you think about who we were as a nation, really the weakness that we were as a nation compared to the strength of the British Empire. And to think that we won this thing is quite a feat. And so what did they think about that victory? Well, that's interesting. Listen to his words. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to employ His protection and favor, and whereas both houses of Congress 
<coughs> excuse me, as both houses of Congress have by this joint committee requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer. Did you catch that? Both houses of Congress recommended this. And to, be, and to observe by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity to peaceably to establish and form a government for their safety and happiness. You know, what were they saying? What's he saying in this? He says, listen, this is incredible what's going on here. But the, the father of the nation, the hero of the war, says, this is God's doing. Yes, Porter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I, yeah, and I think when we when we think about that and all these things that happen, it's you know to think. I mean, we read this and go, <coughs> they understood, and they proclaimed this that we didn't do this. You know, I, I have a concern these last few years with Christians. It's just become so apparent of so many Christians that look to government for their security and their hope. And I'm bothered by that. God, this, let's go to Nahum. In chapter 1, God's control, His sovereignty, His providential care is amplified. <clears throat> Archaeological digs and recorded history leave us in no doubt of what God has said through Nahum. You know, we talked about some of it in our introduction, that God is in control. But what do we do with this knowledge? We, we, we say the right things because we've been taught what the right thing is to say. We believe that God is sovereign. We believe that in his providential care. But what do we do with this belief? <clears throat> Eugene Peterson, and, and I'll just say this real quick. You know, I quote a lot of people, and I don't want anybody to assume that just because I quote someone that I fully agree with them. Okay, because I, I get people confused sometimes. I'll, I'll quote people from one camp, and they think they've got me p- p- uh, pegged, and then I'll quote somebody from another camp. <laughs> What's going on here? Uh, I just think if I find something that's, that's, that's profitable, to me anyway, I, I'll, I'll use it. And I appreciate a lot of what Eugene Peterson has done throughout his life in, in service to the Lord. But I don't agree with everything. And so I'm not going to get off on that, but I just thought, you know, I'm just going to say that. So anyway, this is something that Peterson said. God's revelation of himself is rejected far more than is accepted. His revelation is dismissed by far more people than embrace it. It has either been attacked, ignored, by every major civilization in which it has given its witness, Magnificent Egypt, fierce Assyria, 
beautiful Babylon, artistic Greece, political Rome, enlightened France, Nazi Germany, Renaissance Italy, Marxist Russia, Mayoist uh, China, and ready? In pursuit of happiness, America. The community of God's people has survived in all of these cultures and civilizations, but always as a minority, always marginal to the mainstream, and never statistically significant. Again, my concern for so many of us today in the church is that we are found, and you know, really with all that's going on, you know, it's obvious. I'm not saying that there's not bad things happening in our country. These are dark, black, evil things. I mean, we, so many of us in this room will say, we can't believe what has happened in such a short period of time. Arlene was talking about how our parents used to talk about this. Oh, it's just, I can't believe how bad it's gotten. And we can remember our grandparents saying this, and then we said, yeah, but you know what? They're, they're right. It's just gotten worse and worse to where we've accelerated to what's going on now. And we're so uptight. I'm getting kind of sick of it, to tell you the truth. Of the conversations that I have with so many believers who are so beat down, who are so depressed, who are so just negative about what's going on, like it's never happened before. We want so much for the government to save us. God has never been shaken by the fall of any great society. Why should we? We need and we must be taken captive by Christ. And not Donald Trump. I mean, look at the examples we've been given in our life. As a church. I'm thinking of Peter and Yarden Nasser. Our missionaries in Israel who have to live in a bunker. But that hasn't stopped the ministry. It's just changed how they do it. And i got to tell you, Arlene and I are the contact for them. And, and i got to tell you, when we get their letters, oh my goodness, we, we're encouraged. You know, they send pictures, and maybe some of you have seen it. They send pictures of the, the, the bombs that are being you know, shot in and exploding over their head. And, you know, the defense system is, is knocking them out of the sky just above their heads. Their letters are positive and encouraging. How about Vera Umnova? You know, one of our alumni at His Hill who's come to, back to visit and, and gives account. She's been on our podcast and... I mean, and, and let, me, let me be clear, though. It's not that she isn't saddened by what goes on in Ukraine. It's not that her heart isn't broken by what she sees. I mean, the last time she was here, it was for a sabbatical because those that were working with her saw that you know, PTSD was becoming an issue for her and she needed, she needed a break. But, you know, anybody who has ever spent any time with her can't deny how challenging she is. She is convinced of the providential care and the sovereignty of God. 
Her eyes are fixed on Christ. These people, the Yassers and Vera, these believers are convinced of God's providence, of God's sovereignty. Are we? We see God speak in verse 1. The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. We find, uh, if you have read through the prophets, we find a familiar word here, the word oracle. And you've probably heard this explained before. Sometimes it's translated burden because that's what it is. It comes from the verb meaning to be lifted or carried. And it's a weighty kind of message. Uh, it, it's, and this is, why it's, this is why we teachers are not just drawn to go teach the prophets. You know, you want to be a blessing when you go to talk to people. <laughs> like these things can be weighty. Very heavy. The, the word oracle is used in Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, also Habakkuk and Zechariah. So God has a heavy thing for his people to hear. One person commented that a burden was an oracle of denunciation in which God makes an object lesson out of a wicked subject. So he's teaching the rest of us something here. J.E. Smith said it like this, In a burden, the haughty are humbled, the oppressed are liberated, and the cursed are blessed, and vice versa. And it's a very heavy, I mean, this is, this is an incredible message that is given. And so, and looking at this, the burden of Nineveh, you know, and looking through the book, studying it, thinking through it, I began to realize that the burden of Nineveh is literally God himself. Now, that's a slap in the face. That's a wake-up call. The burden that they have to carry is God himself. You know, do we want to be found in that situation? Well, we're having to carry on, literally carry the wrath of God. I say this because repetition equals emphasis. So, in the first chapter alone, 15 verses, we will find God referred to 29 times in 14 verses. In verses 2 to 8, which we're about to read, we'll find Him referred to 24 times in just verses 2 to 8. And he will be referred to as God, Lord, His, He, um, Himself. Let's read it. We'll start in verse 2. Just, the eight, just verses 2 to 8. As a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will, be, will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way 
and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him. And the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight, of Nineveh's sight, and will pursue his enemies into darkness. In these verses, we're reminded of the providence and the sovereignty of God. His control over creation, his control over the individual's life. God, and we also see this, that God has never and will never allow evil or that which opposes him to win. Let's walk through Scripture and look at this, the consistency of God. In your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12, God won't put up, he will not put up with the sin of the man who seeks God's heart. With David, isn't it interesting, in verse 9 of chapter 12, after David has committed the sin with Bathsheba and then has killed her husband, we read this, God sends the prophet and asks David some questions. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? By doing evil in his sight. Wow. You know, we still, we think, and it, I mean, it's a simple thought in it. So often we feel like what I'm doing that I know is wrong, I'm doing in private. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will rise up against you from your own household. I will, I'm sorry, I will rise up evil against you from your own household. What a statement. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with them or with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. I mean, this is a wonderful, encouraging passage, isn't it? 
God deals with the wicked. I have up on the screen Psalm 28, verse 5. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the deeds of his hands, he will tear them down and not build them up. And that's the, why don't we sing that? How about, how about just before Charlie preaches, our, our, our uh, uh, Dale this morning, how about we sing that? God deals with the sin of the believer. Turn with you to the book of Acts. Church is brand new. They've, they've witnessed these incredible things. Christ has been crucified. Come back to life. Can you imagine being one of those first believers that saw him? And was there when he ascended? One of those believers who was in the upper room on the day of Pentecost when he then fills them with his very life? Thousands of people come to faith in Christ. Incredible things were going on. In chapter 5 of Acts, in verse 1, we find the story of Ananias and Sapphira. I was going through this this morning and realized I don't think I've ever met an Ananias or a Sapphira. I don't think. Parents don't gravitate to those biblical names, do they? In verse 1, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, kept back some of the price for himself. With his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. (coughs) So they give the money to the church and make it seem like they've given all the sum of what they sold the property for. Verse 2, and he kept back some of the price for himself. No, I read that, didn't I? Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, listen to the wording, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over the whole all who heard of it. I believe that this is God's goal in dealing with us. Great fear coming over us. Now that that's not real that's not a real exciting message, is it? Verse 6, the young men got up and they covered him up and they carried him out. They buried him. Now, there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for, which, uh, for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. Immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And again, great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. God deals with the sin of his people. 
It's not an isolated event. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. One of the warning passages there in the book of Hebrews. And here in chapter 10, he's just, the writer has just presented Christ in the beginning of the, of the, of the chapter. He's kind of reviewing some things that he is, he's already taught in the book. And he's presenting Christ as being better and, and our, our hope. He's, he's, he's our victory. You know, and and he, he just goes, this is really rich, the beginning part of this. And then he says, now enter into this which God has accomplished in Christ. Encourage one another to, to enter in, stimulate one another. You know, forsake not the gathering together. You know, all of this. And then he says this in verse 26. For if we go on sinning, now, who are the we? Well, he wrote this to believers. He's writing this to the church. So Christians, if we go on sinning, there are some Christians who believe that once you're a Christian, you can't sin. Well, that's baloney. You've been forgiven. You've been redeemed. But you can still sin. Because he's talking to believers. If we go on sinning, Willfully. And that word means voluntarily. I'll do it. <laughs> we know what we're doing. This has become habitual in our life. This is what we want, and we know it's wrong, and, but we're throwing ourselves all in. There's no battling over it. There's no turning to the Lord. There's just willful sin. Look how it reads. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Ooh. <laughs> what does that mean? But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We don't like this language in our evangelical circles. You know, we're just, we just want what? God, give us a good president. And everything will be okay. Y'all, we've had Trump before. Look where we are now. We've had good people in government. We've had people make good decisions. Look where we are now. Our hope is not in Washington. <coughs> now, I really got y'all confused, huh? As to who I'm voting for. I'll tell you. If you want to know, come ask me. <laughs> hey, Kelly. Yes, ma'am. I was just also thinking, what's even scarier is 
do it. Mm-hmm. You know, like the scripture says about if you um, look at a woman just looking at yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think even with that, because we, we can handle that, right? We hear that and go, if I think it, oh, I should think that. Oh, I thought that. Gee, that's too bad. Read these things again. This is a heavy, weighty thing, and we are so flippant. I am so flippant with God. What is this? What what is this fire? What this uh, terrifying expectation with the fury of a fire? What is this? Go to First Corinthians three. Here, Paul is upset with these believers because they will not grow up. They will not mature in Christ. They've been believers long enough to where they should be teaching. They should be, they should be mature believers, but they're not. And he is really upset with them. He says in the beginning of chapter 3, he says, I had to talk to you like you are mere men. I have to talk to you like you are not saved. Though you are. He calls them brethren. They are saved. He calls them saints. They are saved. But he says, I have to treat you like you're not. And then in verse 10 he says this, According to the grace of God, which is given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And by the way, the problem that's going on here in chapter 3 is they're all putting their faith, they're all putting their hope in different church leaders, Paul being one of them. And Paul's saying, what are you doing? See, man, our flesh is the same, and man just doesn't change. <laughs> we keep putting our hope and our faith in all these things, but never in Christ. We'll put our belief in him so that we can get out of hell and go to heaven. But to, to live this life and to face the things that we have to face these days, we, we just depend on so many people, don't we? But not the person, Christ. Verse 10, according to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another's building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which has been built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Okay, so we build on Christ. And we're all building. If you put your faith in Christ, you're building on Christ. What are you building with? That which is precious and of great value the gold, the silver, the precious stones are that which is not of value, of great value and will decay, actually will become ashes when tested by the fire, the wood, hay, or straw. We're believers and we're more concerned as believers. We're more concerned over who will win the next election than over making sure that our neighbor knows Jesus. I'm talking to myself. If any man's work is burned up, here's this fire. He will, ready Christians, suffer loss. 
It doesn't say he's going to have to do without a little bit. He will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved. There's God's mercy and grace. Yet so as through fire. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, starts off with God speaking. And that's what we're talking about here, God speaking. Are we listening to what he says? And so the beginning of the book of Hebrews talks about God speaking through Christ. And he says, in, in these, uh, God spoke long ago through the prophets, we're looking at the prophets, through, in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days has spoken to you, has spoken to us through Christ. And as we go on in the book, we find this is what he says. This is what God has to say to us in chapter 2 and verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Look, God is... He's he is defeating evil, period, across the board. Yeah, he's going to deal with the sin in your life. He is going to, he's going to work with you. He is going to, and we need to fear him. We need to respond to what he says. But look at what he's saying here. Paul says, there's nothing good in me that is in my flesh. Look at what God does for us. God is destroying Satan. There is certain victory. In, this, in the wrath of God, there is what? There is a place for us to take great comfort and great joy. We don't have time to go to it, but if you're taking notes, Revelation 12, verses 7 to 10, that final victory that God will bring about in Christ it says in verse 10, Therefore I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority, the sovereignty of his Christ have come. Do you acknowledge the providence and the sovereignty of God in your life? And his faithfulness in dealing with sin in your life? He's getting rid of it because he didn't make you for it. There is no satisfaction with it. No permanent satisfaction with it. In closing, Ira Sankey, uh, some of you know who he was. He was uh, D.L. Moody's song leader. And he was well known. Once he was uh, on the on, a, on the Delaware River with a, 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 on a steamboat. And the other passengers recognized him because his picture had been in the paper. They walked up to him and they asked, they asked him, would you, would you sing one of your hymns for us? He, was, he wrote many hymns. I went through the list last night and thought, oh my goodness, unbelievable how many hymns he wrote. Some of them are still familiar to us today. Hymns like, Faith is the Victory, The Lily of the Valley. Now, some of you younger people have no idea what that is. Simply trusting every day. They walk up to him and they said, they asked him if he would please sing one of his hymns. And he was very reluctant. 
And he told them, no, I, I tell you what, I would rather sing a hymn written by William B. Uh, Bradbury. And it's the hymn, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. And as he sang, you know, the stanza that, that, that's so well known, and it says, we are thine. Do thou befriend us. Be the guardian of our way. And when he had finished singing this song, one of, the, one of the men that was standing in the crowd stepped forward. And he asked Sankey, did you serve in the Union Army during the Civil War? in 1860, in the spring of 1860. And Sankey looked at him, he said, why, yes, I did. Were you on guard duty one moonlit night in 1862? And Sankey looked at him and he was shocked. He said, yes, I remember that. And the man asking the question said to him, yeah, I served in the Confederate Army. And I was on guard duty the same night. I was hit in the brush, and I had a clear view of you. I'll read the account. When I saw you standing at your post, I thought to myself, that fellow will never get away alive. I raised my musket, I took aim. I was standing in the shadow, completely concealed. With the full light of the moon, which was falling upon you, at that instant, just as a moment ago, you raised your eyes to heaven and you began to sing. Let him sing his song to the end, I said to myself. I can shoot him after. He's my victim, and I won't miss. But the song you sang then was the song you sang just now. I heard the words perfectly. We are thine. Do thou befriend us. Be the guardian of our way. Those words stirred up my memories. I began to think of my childhood and my God-fearing mother. She had many times sung that song to me. When you had finished your song, it was impossible for me to take aim again. I thought, now listen, the Lord who is able to save that man. Isn't that incredible? This is the guy holding the, holding the gun. And his statement is that the Lord who is able to save that man from certain death must surely be great and mighty. And my arm of its own accord dropped limp to my side. Is your God great and mighty? Now, I know you know the answer, so let me ask the question again. Is your God great and mighty? If he's not, then you're not listening to what he has to say. When the sin which so, Hebrews says, the sin which so easily entangles us, isn't that a scary statement? When that sins which so easily entangles us, what should our reaction be to our spouse? 
to our children, to our employer, to our government. For many in this room, what should our reaction be to our president? What should be our response? Buckle down? Try harder? Well, you know that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not the life of Christ. So what should our reaction be? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. Hmm. Do you see who's doing this? From all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder today of your sovereignty, your providence. Thank you for speaking and not being silent. And Lord, we ask for your wisdom to not stand before you with comfortable arrogance, but with fear. You are God. Yet you desire us. And you have made it possible for us to know you all through your son, Jesus. So, Lord, we ask for your wisdom to take hope in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, guys.